Thanks for checking out this podcast. Remember, it's presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, Target Center, or XL Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota baseball, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. And Ticket King can take care of you for out-of-town concerts, sporting events, and more. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Jose, does he go by Jose or J-O? Is there like an official... So the Twins... I call him J-O. Me too. An interesting, unique name. Jose is like the Mike. Yeah. yeah. Like American names Mike, Steve... There are, it's Jose. There are a lot of people who call him Jose, and both are fine. I, I, I asked him two years ago when he was here at Target Field for the Futures game. They're making his first start in the Futures game. Mm-hmm. He started two, if you'll recall. Yeah. Um, and I said, hey, some people call you Jose. I've seen J.O. His Twitter handle was J.O. at the time. What, like, what, what do you prefer? And he said that both are okay. I don't care. He's a really, like, Twins fans are going to like this guy. He's yeah. a really low-key... Yeah, hard worker. Um, you'll never hear a bad word about his work ethic, but he's also just like polite and humble and confident. Um, from a personality perspective, the Twins would have loved to have him the day they drafted him. But uh, now he's actually coming to the show. Anyways, I, I asked him if there was a preference, and he said that no, not at all. I don't care. Everyone calls me whatever they want, and that's fine. Jose You're is, Steve now. Jose is what my... Uh, Steve Berrios is your name. Jose is what my friends call me, but, like, J-O is my, my baseball name, and my family will call me J-O. So, I mean, his, I think his name is, if I'm not mistaken, it's Jose Orlando Berrios, and so mm, he says he doesn't care. You get to pick which one, so I just picked J-O. I think I've told you this story on the podcast before, and... You know, take it for what it's worth because the guy who told me this wound up getting fired with Ron Gardner a couple of years ago. But when I covered uh, the beat for three or four years and I was at spring training one year, and this is, this is I think, the year after Barrios was drafted. He was a sandwich pick. Yep. Um, the Buxton, Buxton went number, yeah. number one for the Twins in that draft, and then Barrios was a sandwich pick mm-hmm. between the first and second rounds. And at the time, they had traded for Alex Meyer. That was the offseason. So they drafted Barrios early that year, then they – acquired Alex Meyer and Trevor May, and they had a couple other guys, like Gibson was coming off an injury at that point. But they, had, they started to stockpile some arms. Sure. And I'm standing there on one of the chain-link fence side fields down from Hammond Stadium. And it was a B game, minor leaguers mostly, and it might have even been an inter-squad scrimmage game where, like, TK's walking around with the fungo bat, like, sunglasses <laughs> on, just... Those guys love spring training. (laughs) Just walking around with a fungal bat for no reason. (laughs) And some of them have clipboards. Giving tips to players. and (laughs) TK would would fill up little Gatorade cups for dogs who were outside in the (laughs) 90 degree heat. That's really funny. And so on the mound, well, I'll save the, you you know what the hook's going to be, but 
I'm sitting behind home plate at the picnic table, and there's a scout or somebody with a radar gun. I'm guessing you're not telling an Alex Meyer story. No, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) And so here's the twist. Nick Blackburn was on the mound. (laughs) Filthy stuff. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to Rick Anderson at the time. So yeah. it's, it's me, and it's, I can't remember who had the radar gun, and it's Rick Anderson and maybe a few other people. There's a couple other Twins people around, a couple front office people, mm-hmm. a couple reporters. But just, you're, it's like you're watching a high school game. You're yeah. at a chain link fence field, and there's no one watching, and you're watching all these players. And Rick Anderson goes, I said, what, what pitches do you like among the young crop, all these younger guys? Which ones, what, what would you say, which one has the best chance to really stand out or really have a career down the road? And he goes, he points out to the mind, he goes, 100%, that guy right there. Wow. And Barrios is, what, five foot ten, maybe? 11, yeah. five, he's not six feet <laughs> it tall. It depends if he's wearing spikes or flat-soled yeah. flat shoes. But he has what they call a heavy fastball, so it sinks 92, 94 mm-hmm. miles an hour, Works hard, like we said, is obsessed with winning and obsessed with getting better, and has three really good pitches. He throws a changeup, he throws a breaking ball. And I just, uh, people have pinpointed him around the country and they've pinpointed him in the organization for years. I don't think the hype is overstated with him. Maybe he flames out, but he's been dominant at every level. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense to call him up right now. You, you got out of the window of, of service time. So he can now be on the roster the whole year. He doesn't get the full year of service time. So you get him for the seventh full year if he stays up. And it might be too late for them to come back and finish above 500. But I think putting him in the rotation right now is a great idea. Yeah, I like, I like the decision. Totally agree. And we'll see how long it lasts. I think that's part of the interesting thing. The Twins have so many moving parts with their starting rotation at the time of this podcast recording. Mm-hmm. Um, Irvin Santana's got a stiff back. Tyler Duffy's got a baseball imprinted on his left arm or on his right arm. Um, you know, they're just. Tommy Malone has struggled. Um, I think, and, and if I make this prediction and it comes wrong, obviously it sounds bad. But I think you'll see one or both of uh, Duffy slash Santana have to get either sent out or put on the disabled list. That clears some room. Maybe they do something with Tommy Malone. Um, all of this stuff remains to be seen, so that's what I'm fascinated by. But I think you're right. I think the timing is right for the Twins. I think they can now justifiably also say, hey, he had some things to work on. We sent him to AAA, and, oh, he dominated. He did walk eight guys in 17 innings, so let's not pretend like it's great. But he can help this pitching staff. He might be, he might have the best raw stuff on the staff like right yeah. now. As a 21-year-old, which is incredible. So the he only still other, has some steps, but we'll see. The only other 21-year-old pitchers, or I'll phrase it this way, the only other pitchers in Twins history who've been called up at a younger age and both were also 21, hmm. uh, Johan Santana and Francisco Liriano. That's pretty good. And he's in that same category of, of stuff. Now, Johan had the changeup, and, Bar- yeah. and he developed that throughout his minor league career. He didn't really have it early on. He developed it, I think, maybe even after he got to the Twins. And that's why he was a rule. If he had the changeup before the Rule Five draft, I don't think he would have been in the Rule Five draft. Yeah, I think probably he not. Probably wouldn't have been made available. But um, if there's going to be one strikeout pitch that puts Barrios above other pitchers, I think it's going to be the gap between his fastball and his and his changeup. Yeah, it might be. And one thing that's going to be interesting to watch. And now this is really getting in the weeds. So if this was on the radio, we might not go down this path. But the Touch 'Em All <laughs> listeners just crave baseball. And so I'll bring it to this audience. 
Trevor May has found success in the bullpen this year largely by elevating his fastball and learning how his different pitches play off each other. All right, if he has a fastball at the letters, well, if the next pitch, it's okay if he leaves a change up high because it looks like the, it looks like the fastball. Whereas most people, it's the blanket statement, right? Bury your change up, bury your change up, finish the pitch. How do you get it down at the knees or falling out of the strike zone? That's the swing and a miss change up. Well, it is if that's where your fastball is best and most effective. For Trevor May, that's not the case. Trevor May lives up in the zone, and he's found success with that this year. Barreos, I think, is going to be a little bit of the opposite. Um, just from what I'm told and having watched him a little bit, um, he's, like you mentioned, he's 5'10", 5'11". Yeah. So the ball is not coming up from very high. His fastball moves downward as Correct. well. So Having that sink is helpful for what he should probably want to do and that's because if he tries to live up in the zone, the ball is basically coming straight. It's eye level. And how many ma- major league hitters have you seen, if you know a 95-mile-an-hour fastball is coming at the belt, they do damage with that pitch. 95 doesn't mean what it used to mean. And that's going to be what's interesting to me, to see if Barreos can live down in the strike zone. Can he make all of his pitches sort of play off of each other? Because initially, I think he could find success just because his stuff is filthy. He could be like, oh, whoops. I left a two-seamer out over the plate, but then it ran so much that I still oh, yeah. got a swing and a miss on it. And that's what's great about him. I think over time, if he develops into more of a pitcher, too, he's got a pretty high ceiling. See, Twins you, fans should be excited for this guy. Yeah, if you have a great changeup, and Johan Santana, the thing you just mentioned about leaving changeups up in the zone, it's one of those taboo things right. as, a, as a pitcher. Like you said, bury your changeup. Don't leave the changeup up because if, it, if it's up and a hitter... If, if it's down, a hitter has to kind of reach for it, and he's going to be ahead of it, mm-hmm. and so there's almost two times the chance that he can swing and miss. But Johan had something like a 10-mile-an-hour difference between his fastball and his changeup, maybe even more sometimes. Mm-hmm. So he could literally put it anywhere he wanted, and it wouldn't matter. You're pulling the string so much, hitters, doesn't matter where the pitch is, they're not going to hit it. Timing's off. So I, I'll be curious to see once we get to look at the, the true difference now with some of the pitch FX information that's going to be out there. What is the true difference when you start to see him in the big leagues between his fastball and changeup? If there's a huge gap, if it's like 10 miles an hour, you can throw it almost anywhere yeah. in the zone. And got, Johan would hang changeups on accident, and he'd kind of cringe. You know, he'd, he'd get the strikeout, and he'd kind of turn his head like, oh, man, that was a bad pitch. <laughs> but not really because it was an 80-mile-an-hour changeup. I'm Johan Santana. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we mentioned, so Braille will be making the start Wednesday, it sounds like, um, against the Indians at Target Field in the series finale. Um, I'm not sure yet at the recording of this podcast what that means for Kyle Gibson, but we'll see. All of this stuff will get figured out. Or Tommy Malone, for that matter. Who, right. Once right. again, was he's become the four and two-thirds yeah, guy. Yeah, it's a nice pattern. Not a good label. <laughs> no, you don't want that. Um, well, here's an interesting little tidbit on Braille's too, from spring training. And I talked about this story on the podcast with you before. We talk about him as being a three-pitch pitcher, and he's got what scouts call three-plus pitches, which people listening to this podcast probably know. Uh, there's like, you know, there's this gradient of competitiveness, and like if you're if you're at the top of that, you're plus plus. Like Buxton is a plus plus runner um, in scouting parlance. And now what's interesting is like we talk about Barrios has a fastball, he's got the breaking ball, and he's got a changeup. But Barreos actually has two fastballs, and that, it almost, because of how much his two-seamer moves, it, it's almost like a fourth pitch. I was standing behind the um, little, what are those called, those turtle shells in spring training? Where, yeah, the you know, batting they, cage shells. Yeah, they, they wheel them onto the field so they can do, it's a temporary cage set up, basically, so they can do batting practice. 
Braille's is pitching the first day to live hitters. And keep in mind, at the beginning of spring training, the pitchers are always ahead of the hitters. They've been working on bullpens. Barrios specifically had thrown like, I want to say, six live bullpens before, six bullpens before he got to spring training. So this kid, I mean, he's hyper competitive. Mm-hmm. He might have to dial that back at some point. That in happened with Liriano one time, where he threw like nine bullpens yeah, before just... getting into spring training, and then hurt his shoulder. <laughs> okay, yeah. And they had to tell him, "What do you just yeah. calm down? You don't need to start on Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> like, just get here in February right. and be in shape. If you're doing that, you're okay." And so, uh, the two seamer though impressed so many people with the Twins. I was I was just watching from behind, and you could see Miguel Sano would stand up in there, and the two seamer just runs all the way across the plate. And Sano, like I said, hitters are behind pitchers at the beginning of spring training, but Sano, who I consider to have a great eye at the plate and a great pitch recognition, especially for a 22-year-old, he just looks back at everyone who's standing kind of behind the batter's cage thing there, and he goes, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, he couldn't believe how oh, yeah. much Barrios' two-seam rule move. So That's I think, awesome. I mean, Twins fans who haven't seen him before, even if the first start, first couple starts don't go super well. He's for sure getting shelled in the first start based on how much we've just pumped his tires I for think the first so. 10 minutes of this podcast. I think that's entirely He's going possible. three and two-thirds, and he's walking four and giving up about six earned runs because hard, of this podcast. Hard hit contact, yeah. too. But I'm just saying, even if those first couple starts aren't spectacular for Braille's, it'll be fun for Twins fans to watch the movement, the location, what he does when he falls behind and counts, because I think... Uh, an interesting thing to watch on young pitches is like, how can they battle back? Oh, you're in an adverse situation. It's a 3-1 count. What do you do now? Well, most people groove a fastball, and if a big league hitter's looking for it, you do what Jose Bautista did to Tyler Duffy in Toronto last year. But how you react in a 3-1 count, and if you can get yourself, dig yourself out of those holes, is a sign, a very good early sign, for me anyways, for young pitchers and their potential ceiling in the future. So um, unless you have anything else on Barrios right now, I'm sure we can talk a lot about him next week too because we'll have seen him at least once or twice. Yeah, I mean, uh, nothing nothing jumps to mind. I, I I am wary about pumping his tires too much. We, that this start, we just went all in, yeah, and this, it's totally fine. It's, we'll, you, we'll, we'll backtrack on Tuesday next right. week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the old poker rule, uh, I'd love playing with my first-time friends or whatever because they'd go all in. And they'd be like, ah, actually, and they'd pull some chips out of no, it. You no, you can't do that. Sorry. You cannot pull That's any verbally chips binding. out of <laughs> we, we are verbally binded. We are pot committed to this bet we on are Jose Barrios. pot committed on Barrios. Um, but your segue uh, in that pitchers who fall behind, if, you're, if you have elite stuff, you can kind of come back by throwing unconventional pitches in different counts. It's an interesting segue to Byron Buxton, who had the opposite problem as a hitter. I looked this up, and he got sent down. We can, we can talk about the Kepler move, too. But in counts in which he fell down in the count, so at any point where he sure. fell behind in the count, 17 times, 0 for 17 in those at-bats. In counts in which there were two strikes at any point, so at any point, 0 and 2, 1 and 2, 2 and 2, if you got ahead 3 and 0 and it went to 3 and 2, mm-hmm. any time the count reached two strikes with Byron Buxton, he was 1 for 28 yeah. in those situations. That's bad. With 24 strikeouts for an 036 batting average. Now, most hitters, all hitters, are going to be a lot worse with two strikes than they are in other situations. Joe Maurer, for instance, is on the opposite end. He's one of the great hitters of the last 15 years. And he hits like 250 with, with two strikes. Which doesn't career. sound good. But it's amazing with Until two you look in the context. I think the league what? average is probably below 200 in those situations. So I don't, somewhere around 200. I don't know what it is offhand, but it's... 
it's bad. It's funny to look at counts and how much the league as a whole struggles in those situations. So on Buxton, I'm looking at it in two ways. Number one, you got to make contact. He's yeah. striking out in half of his plate appearances. He one if if you get to two strikes on him, it's over. He just he flails at pitches. He can't figure it out. Yeah. On the other hand, he's 22, and he has fewer than 200 career major league at bats. Mm-hmm. We think, oh, he's been around. No, he he had 140 last year, and he had about 45 or 50 more this year. And so to even have a judgment on him at this point is way premature. Go down, though, take some AAA at-bats, come back up in a month or two, whenever that may be. Um, I just don't want people to think, oh, it's, he's a bust, classic, another, yeah. another Twins high draft pick, not panning out. Right. We can't say that for probably another 1,000 plate appearances. And, again, he has fewer than 200 at this point. Yeah, I still think – so there are problems, and we can talk about the problems as much – as we want to, but I think the overarching theme, like if, let's say, a friend of mine who doesn't really follow baseball but kind of wants to check in, oh, hey, I saw Byron Buxton got sent down. Wasn't he supposed to be kind of the next big thing? He's their savior. My one-sentence answer was, yeah, I mean, he's not quite ready yet, but he's still the real deal. He's Mm -hmm. the future. And I think that's the best way to do it. We tend to get in the weeds so much. Like you and I, we, we, we follow baseball closely. We follow this team. There's... You know, for any one player, there are a hundred stories you could tell. And this stuff is fascinating, but there's so much, there's so much volume of, of words, of analysis, of things like that. If you were going to boil it down and condense it into one sentence, it would be, chill out. Don't worry about Byron Buxton. He's not ready yet, and that's too bad for this team because it would have been really nice to have a great center fielder yeah. leading off and, and, they, and getting they, on base. They might have four more wins right now just if he, it's possible. If he has an extra hit in an, in an eighth inning situation or right. so whatever. Yeah. Like, not that he'd be a four-win player by wins above replacement, but mm-hmm. just the situation of games. The Twins had a better bullpen uh, or, or a more lights-out string at the end of their bullpen they might have a couple more wins too i'm not saying the bullpen's worth two wins but so far this season it would have been Mm -hmm. um and so i don't know there are problems yes but my biggest picture takeaway is that like the future is still bright for byron buxton based on everything he's done in the minor leagues based off every evaluator that i've talked to and based on even just watching him, this is this is what's interesting about him. He could be a bust at the plate. It's it's possible. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. And he'll still find his way on the major league rosters. Like Byron Buxton will hit major league free agency, and that's something you can't say about a lot of guys who struggle with the bat early in their career. They're not his, necessarily going to get there. His worst case scenario is fourth outfielder in like eight years. I'm saying mm-hmm. he'll mm-hmm. he'll be a fourth outfielder who comes on kind of a D Gordon type player. A guy who comes on, steals bases, plays defense. I think his worst-case scenario, this is just my opinion, is much higher than that. I think it's B.J. Upton, or uh, Melvin Upton now. He's changed yeah, his name. I forgot uh, that, too, actually. <clears throat> so, yeah, whenever I see Melvin Upton, I'm like, who's that guy? Who's oh, that? that's right. It was B.J. Upton. <laughs> they got a new time. player. Yeah. But he's kind of, you know, he, he was, I believe he was a top three pick somewhere in there. I don't, I don't think he was number one overall, but he was a first-round draft pick. And he had a couple big seasons right away, 20 home run power, 20 to 30 to 40 stolen base speed. Mm-hmm. And then eventually strikeouts took over, became kind of a 230, struggling to hit over the Mendoza line. And so if, if, if you wind up getting a guy who hits like 240 or 250 on a regular basis and doesn't quite live up to what he did in the minor leagues, yeah. that's still a, a productive player right. if he's playing gold glove caliber defense in the outfield and also stealing you 25 or 30 bases as kind of a, 
not every day type player, but yeah. maybe uh, maybe a platoon type player. You remember how this winter I pumped the tires of the one Oswaldo Arcia, and I continued to use the phrase that I'm bullish on him. That uh, if he's a stock, I think it's headed up. Yes. And if you want to buy it at the low point, get in now. I would say that if people are selling their Byron Buxton stock, I'd gladly buy right now. You're gonna oh, yeah. get. I'm with you. You're gonna get reduced prices. And then when he capitalizes, and you remember, too, here's another thing we talked about this winter, win ranges. We didn't want to pick a win total for the Twins, which, by the way, we probably would have whiffed on um, if we did, given this start. But, like, we, we might had have a whiffed, range. We might have whiffed on the win range at this rate. Well, not, like not me. eight games below 500 not already. Not me. I, I'm in good shape there. Did you put them on 100 losses in your range? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not going to be that bad. But. There was that one that I said uh, they'll win somewhere between 5 and 125 right. games. <laughs> so I'm still, I actually feel pretty good about that right now. Um, but in terms of, like, potential outcome range, let's talk about Byron Buxton. I think... The floor is probably what you said. I mean, he's a stud defensively. I think he's ready to win a gold glove right now. You compare him with the Kevin Kiermeyers of the world, those type of players. Byron Buxton is an elite defensive center fielder. Mm-hmm. Uh, will he hit? I mean, he can't strike out in half his plate appearances. He just can't. If he continues to do that, then, yeah, his floor is not a regular. It's as a bench player. All right. I think that's pretty unlikely. His medium ground, like the median range of Byron Buxton, to me, is probably like perennial all-star. And that, so that's what, if it's a bell curve, I'd say that's probably like the most likely outcome. He'll make multiple all-star games in his career with the Twins. And then, I mean, if you want to talk about the flip side of what that floor is, his ceiling, I mean, he could be a Hall of Famer. Yes, it's a wide range, and it's almost as ridiculous as saying the Twins might win between 5 right. and 125 games. But it's still, I think, to your point... They're all still possible. The top of that range doesn't change based on his first 190 plate appearances that don't look good so far. Yeah. But the perception of him changes because of the culture we live in now. Right. Which is, if, you're, if your first-round draft pick quarterback looks terrible after 10 games, mm-hmm. Blake Bortles is a great example. He was mostly terrible his first year with the Jaguars. Give him a second year, he throws for like 4,000 yards and 30 touchdowns. Okay. Well, people who panicked on him after year one, give it time to play out. It's just 20 years ago, you would have maybe, if you were a diehard fan, maybe you would have seen that the the Twins drafted Byron Buxton in the top five. Okay. And maybe you follow him a little bit. But you don't get the daily, you don't go to MILB.com and look at the box scores on a daily basis and get really excited. It's just, oh, they drafted that guy a few years ago. I forgot. Oh, he's up now. That's cool. And, and there were no real expectations because you haven't been following. Yeah. Now, so many more people follow on a daily basis. Well, and then don't account for the fact that even though he might have crushed double-A or triple-A, yeah. Major League Baseball pitchers are just much more dominant. Right. And it, just, it, takes, it takes more than 200 at-bats sometimes to figure him out. Here's a personal anecdote. Um, so back to Boreos for a second because I think, I think it'd be fair to call Boreos the top pitching prospect in this organization since, would it be Garza? Liriano. Probably? Liriano? Yeah. They were kind of in the same what is era, it? but yeah. Okay, so we'll go the, like, Liriano, Garza, and, uh, and in that time, I remember, this just shows you how much has changed, too, and partly because now I have a computer and I know what the Internet is, but in those days I would get the Star Tribune and I would read, you know, Joe C's stories, and I'd read Lavelle, and I'd flip to the back page where they had the little agate 
box scores mm -hmm. from the Miracle, and it wasn't the Colonels back then. What was it? Was it the Snappers? Uh, Beloit um, Snappers, yeah. So whatever the minor league affiliations were at the time, um, and you'd read the box scores. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. These are like the guys who are going to be the guy. And you'd see Garza's line. But, you know, now in hindsight, it's kind of laughable. Like, I wouldn't have known anything about him other than that, all right, he pitched seven innings and gave up two runs. But I, I don't know what that means. Uh, he struck out one and walked ten. Well, like, that's not a good sign. It's a pretty ERA, but that's not a good sign. Was he throwing 88 or 98? Yeah, <laughs> and did he have late life, or yeah. <laughs> uh, was it like a mercy killing? Um, I, I don't know where that story's going, just that, like, we, we do ramp up pressure so much um, and attention, and specifically the people that are just sort of casual baseball followers or observers, like my friend that I mentioned earlier. Hey, Buxton's going down? I thought he was supposed to be the real deal. Like, yeah, those statements can both be true. Mm -hmm. Yes, Byron Buxton's going down. Yes, it's because he's not ready to hit major league pitching. And yes, he's still the real deal. Yeah. Like, it's just weird how quickly we have to jump to, uh, to our decisions. And if this. you think about baseball prospects compared to other sports, you know, basketball, you're not, if you can shoot and if you're athletically sound, yeah. You can impose your will on a basketball game. Yeah. So if you if you're trust me, I know all about that. You are <laughs> preaching to the choir. T-shirt under your jersey in in uh, ninth grade. I always I always ask to go skins actually, just so <laughs> oh, clearly just so I could show it all. I off. remember my uh, career defining moment in basketball. My last year of organized team basketball yeah. was I think eighth grade. Okay. B team. T-shirt under jersey. <laughs> and I remember banking in a three from the right wing. Right. And holding my arm up in the air. Oh, no. Like the cocky arm up oh, in the no. air. And one of the kids on the A-team who was watching from the bleachers just yelled, put your arm down, you <laughs> idiot. Like, you're probably right. Yeah, I think you I'm on the B-team, and I just banked in the three, and I'm acting like, not shocking, by the way. Banks <laughs> open. <Yeah>. Banks <laughs> open. Um, where are we just going? Oh, baseball prospects compared to other sports. In the NBA, if I'm a 19-year-old Carl Anthony Towns, well, okay, I'm seven feet tall, mm -hmm. I can shoot from anywhere, mm -hmm. and I'm just athletically superior to almost everyone I'm matched up against. So I can impose my will on those people sure. and score 20 points if I want or go grab rebounds. In the NFL, if I'm a quarterback, if I study defenses enough, if I put in a ton of work and I study defenses and I'm athletically sound and I can make the throws, it might not be great in year one, but I can kind of get by and I can, you know, I can, I can hang with the rest of the league. In baseball, there's really no, even if you're athletically superior, and even if you've studied opposing pitchers, if you've never faced some of that pitching before, it just takes a while to get used to it. There's mm -hmm. nothing like it. Yeah. There's nothing like seeing a new pitch that, that breaks an extra six inches that no one in the minor leagues has seen before. Mm -hmm. And in baseball, a lot of times, like Torrey Hunter, I went back and I looked at a lot of different first-round picks and specifically number one overall picks. Torrey Hunter was up and down in 97, 98, was up all year in 99 as a 23-year-old, and then got off to a bad start in his fourth partial season as a 24-year-old this time. He's batting like 159 or something after the first couple months, and so they send him down. He's down there for a month, comes back up, and bats 350 the rest of the way, and from there it was smooth sailing, 25 home runs the next season. Hmm. Um, but then you get the guys like Bryce Harper, who are immediately at age 19 or 20, amazing. Mike Trout was MVP caliber at 20 yeah. after facing pretty minimal major league pitching. Um, 
Another guy is Justin Upton, who was first overall pick about 10 years ago. And he was 19 when he got called up, and he was immediately really good at 19 or 20. Yeah. And then you get an Adrian Gonzalez, who was first overall 12 or 15 years ago. He was 24 when he clicked. It just kind of depends. Did you go to college? Did you play three years in college? No. Did you, um, did you come in with raw talent that needed to be formed throughout your... And, and that's... It's just some guys are 24, some guys are 19. Buxton's right in the middle of that right now. He's all... Finish your point. No, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the moral of the story. He's also coming up in an era when not only are we covering these guys more, you know, the, um, the baseball Americas of the world do a fantastic job. And that's not the only publication, but um, do it just a fantastic job of covering and scouting these prospects. And it's great for fans who want this sort of saturated coverage. I think it's fantastic. Um, he's coming up not only in that era, but in an era when the Bryce Harpers, the Mike Trouts, um, Francisco Lindor, Carlos Correa. You're getting these young players coming up and succeeding basically right away, and it makes people impatient. It makes people think, well, okay, why can't Byron Buxton do that? He gets compared with Miguel Sano all the time. Miguel Sano has been playing professional baseball for three years longer than Buxton. Uh, Since he was about 16, right? Yeah, in some of the, yeah. in the Dominican Winter Leagues. Right, and I mean... It's not really a fair comparison, in part just because their skill set's so different, but more to the point, Buxton was facing, like, decent high school pitchers in rural Georgia in 2012, and then he signed a major league contract and got a signing bonus, a whole bunch of money, and then goes to the minor leagues. Miguel Sano, in 2009, goes to start playing professional baseball, started that track, started taking it. I don't want to say the guys didn't take it seriously before they signed or anything like that, but it's now it's your job. It's no longer, hey, you've got this dream and this aspiration that one day a major league team will find you and pay you a bunch of money to play a kid's game. It's, okay, now we're paying you. Go go do it. And it's, I don't know, it's hard to really communicate that part of things. Players have talked about that phenomenon in the past with me about it's just it's just different. The, the ones who are successful, I think, find a pretty good way to bridge that gap of, well, yes, it's work, and you have to do this stuff whether you want to or not, but always keeping that mindset of, okay, it's work, but I'm having a lot of fun, and what a cool job, and if all I have to do is my squats, exercises, and wind sprints twice a week to get to play this game seven days a week, worth that trade-off ten times out of ten. Yeah. There are definitely guys, though, that it's like the work, especially when they're met with early failure, it just starts to become... Uh, a chore more and, than anything. And with Buxton, it sounds like, and you're around him more than I am, but it sounds like the work ethic is there. It sounds like the attitude is there. He's a he's a really even keel type yeah. of a guy. He doesn't he doesn't have emotional swings. I think the moral of the story is, baseball is hard, and sometimes prospects need longer to bake in the oven than others. Sure, it just depends on what the circumstances are. That's exactly why the Twins sent him down. I mean, Terry Ryan will tell you it's because he's not making enough contact and it's not there. But I talked to Paul Molitor about it the other day, and it's, yeah, the contact was concerning, but they knew that he wasn't going to be a great hitter this year. They knew it's kind of like a work in progress. And they still took him north at the end of spring training and said, all right, you're our center fielder, play great defense. We'll bat you ninth, and I want you to kind of work on your offense, get it better throughout the course of your age 22 season, you know, he's still a kid. Um, Molitor suggested it's more than just the physical struggles. It's for a guy who's resolute in his confidence, in his like belief in his own ability, 
that started to waver a little bit. And I think that's where it gets dangerous. You start to tread this line of, gosh, am I really as good as all these people said I am? I mean, I, I think I'm good and I've been good in the past, but ah, when is this going to get easier? It's never getting easier. I wrote a piece in spring training about Buxton and his mindset and how strong-minded he is, but but still very humble, much like Barrales. Um, I think he has the mentality. He's equipped with the right mental tools to succeed. I think that it's not there yet, and that was beginning to test his patience, according to the people I've talked to, and that's the reason he got sent down more than anything else. Um, it doesn't help that the Twins were 4-15 and 15 and needed a shot in the arm, and their outfielders as a whole just weren't playing very well. So that's, I mean, in a nutshell, it's because it hasn't been working at the plate, but it's also, it might have been starting to affect him. I think one quick thing I'll say on just having been around some of the young guys a little bit and trust, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's just in a professional setting when I'm in the clubhouse, like, it's very dangerous to try to glean something from someone's personality based on limited media exposure. Mm-hmm. But with that blanket statement, I will say, what I think I know about um, Buxton and Barreos, they're very similar in that they're quiet guys. They're quietly confident. Um, if they start to succeed, Minnesotans will love that type of personality. On the flip side of that coin, uh, Miguel Sano, also confident, but I would say that borders on cocky. He's loud. He's boisterous. He's fun-loving. Um, Arcia is very much like Sano. Those two, if they continue to succeed and continue to be on this path that it seems like they're on, They'll kind of be like the voice, the loud, sort of eccentric part of the Twins dynamic, whereas Buxton and Barreos probably have more in common with like a Joe Maurer of just being quiet and I don't need to call attention to myself. I'm going to do this because I want to do it, because I want to succeed, and I don't really care what other people think. Whereas if I had to call Miguel Sano anything, and I, I don't mean this like offensively or pejoratively, he's kind of more like a class clown. Uh, and he's a little like Shaquille O'Neal. Yes. He, his persona reminds me of Shaquille O'Neal, sure. of a young Shaquille O'Neal. Goofball, He needs a rap funny. album and a couple weird movies, yeah. though. <laughs> was it Blue Chips? What was that Shaq movie? Oh, Shazam. Shazam is another one. Is another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, with Sinbad? Let's see if, call up Sinbad, see if he wants to do a movie could with Miguel Could do a sequel Sano. and Miguel Sano could star, yeah. Called Mal Ombre. <laughs> uh, I have to ask you about, if you could shed some light and explain this whole David Murphy thing. So, sure. so a couple things. Number one, Arcia hits the walk-off home run on Monday night mm-hmm. in the bottom of the ninth inning. Percent chance that should have been David Murphy's at bat. Well, because <laughs> they were trying to call him up for Monday's game. Should have been or would have been. Would I have. Think, yeah. Well, would would have been would be the question. <laughs> I think they're two different questions. And number two, isn't this now the second time in three years where the Twins have had a guy in his mid thirties who has pretty much drifted out of baseball, but they're kind of giving him another shot. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that tells the twins, not the other way around. Actually, I thank you for the offer on the 25-man roster spot, but I'm good. Jason Bartlett. Yep. Jason Bartlett hurts the ankle, uh-huh. comes back, he's ready to go, and the twins are like, "All right, you're gonna let's go. Let's put you back in left field." And he's we like, "Actually, I'm gonna retire. Yeah, this is it. I'm done." Me. David Murphy. They wind up, and now I, I, it's it's not a huge deal, but John Hicks was their third catcher on the 40-man roster. Uh, he's like 25, 26 years old. Not a great hitter, but yeah. A good defensive catcher, and the two catchers right now that they have on their roster are not playing very well. They need catching. So they, it's, it's good to have a guy like that in reserve if you want. And they wind up outriding him, thinking, oh, David Murphy will just make room for him, and he wants to come up and play in the major leagues. And mm-hmm. somewhere in that window, David Murphy says, actually, I'm okay. Yeah. Appreciate the offer, but uh, my wife and I are going to go hang out on the beach here. So. They always say, 
that the most frustrating part about baseball, forget all the early struggles in your career, the most frustrating part is when the game tells you it's time to retire. The game tells you you're done. But the Twins didn't tell him that. In this case, <laughs> David Murphy, I guess, told the game he was done. Um, yeah, weird deal. He went to the Red Sox in spring, was hoping to latch on there. He was one of their last cuts. Um, basically then was unemployed, and the Twins went calling after their brutal 0-9 start, and their outfielders were flailing away at everything. Eddie Rosario couldn't play. Byron Buxton couldn't play. Miguel Sano wasn't playing well. They're like, oh Arcia my wasn't God. like just wasn't playing. Yeah. Period. Yeah, Max Kepler was sitting on the bench. There, there were like this panic of, holy smokes, you know, we need some veteran presence to sort of stabilize this. And I think the Twins get criticized for that all the time, taking players just for the sake of them being a veteran. But I do, I do believe, even as a stats guy, I do believe there is some value of having. Well, like a Tory Hunter, for example. I mean, we. But he could play still. He could play a little bit. Yeah. And, and he's, he has a history with the franchise. Right. Where the Twins, like, I'm with you in that there is value. There's veteran value, for sure. There's value in Tory Hunter coming in and saying to Aaron Hicks or Byron Buxton, hey, man, if you tweak this or this, or let me show you how to look at pitchers on film, whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. there's tons of value. Or, hey, guys, loosen up. Baseball's fun. It shouldn't take someone to come in and say that, but sometimes it does. Right. But the difference is every time Torrey Hunter was putting someone under his wing or having fun on the team bus, he was also hitting home runs. Yeah. You know, he was a 25 home run guy last year almost. And so um, if, you're, if you're Jason Bartlett and you've been out of the league for three years or if you're David Murphy and your gas tank is pretty much on E and you don't have a history with the franchise, you're going to walk in the third week in April and all of a sudden be a leader? Right, like no. It's, and that's it's not, not realistic. That's not what I'm getting after. Like, this clubhouse chemist thing that we made fun of them for Jason Bartlett, like, that does get, it's overblown. Like, the Twins probably put too much emphasis on that. I'll, I'll grant you that. Especially, yeah, with a guy like David Murphy. Who, there was a great piece on, by the way, two days before he basically, I mean, I don't know if it's official that he's decided to retire, but I'll call it. David Murphy's retiring. There was you a, don't turn down a 25-man roster no. spot when you've been fishing for one for a year. And then hoping to go latch on with some other team somewhere yeah, else? No. Be awfully choosy. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't like the trim on your uniforms, yeah. actually. I'm going to try Oakland. Yeah. Uh, well, anyways, the, the idea of, of him... Coming in and like and saving this thing, I think was probably a little bit overblown. Uh, where was I going with that? On on David Murphy turning the twins. I'm down. just gonna sit here and hang you out to dry until you okay. think of it. Yeah. You talked about Jason Bartlett. <laughs> twins veteran leadership and uh, the notion of bringing veterans in. Jason Bartlett, Jason Kubel. Matt Guerrero was on that team, too. Yeah. Well, they tried a lot of different veterans that year. Yeah, they love veterans. Well, while you think of that, I'll give you one, one example that, that helps illustrate the value of veterans and just how shaky that can be sometimes. Justin Morneau, post-concussion. Was always, pre-concussion was always, he was never super boisterous, but was definitely an authoritative figure in the clubhouse. He was a leader. He was a guy that helped young players. He would pull guys aside once in a while and say, this is how we do things, or this is what you need to do. And he said a number of times when he was batting 220, and then the year after that, it yeah. was like he got back a little bit, but he was still injured and on the disabled list and wasn't quite the old guy. He felt hesitant and insecure to lead the way he used to right. when he was a more productive player. Sure. So players do feel that insecurity where you might think, I'm going to bring in a veteran guy in here, and he's going to help take some guys under his wing. Well, if that guy has his own baggage issues to sort through, and he's batting 220, mm-hmm. or he's a shell of himself, number one, 
those guys tend to feel insecure sometimes unless they're really comfortable in that clubhouse and they've just been around a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and secondly, if I'm a player and I'm and I'm looking over, it's if I'm 22 years old or 24 years old and I don't really know this veteran player who's in here and I know that I'm better than that guy is because he's just not hitting right now. Yeah, it's yep. it's it's hard to have a full impact if you're not a productive veteran with at least a track record among those players in that clubhouse. Totally agree. I remembered my point on Murphy. All right. My tap dancing worked. He retires. We should have got the Jeopardy music. I feel like we need more Jeopardy music on this podcast. <laughs> okay, so he basically retires. All right. It's not like he was going to save the twin season anyways. It did blindside them a little bit. I've talked to a couple people with the twins who they were a little bit surprised that this didn't work out, that he basically you know, cut the cord on his comeback attempt. Um, no matter, because... This speaks to a phenomenon that I've talked about on the podcast before and I will continue to shed light on until it starts to correct itself. And that is that the uh, vocal segment of Twins fans who follow the team on the Internet and on Twitter, um, which can sometimes feel like a majority, but I don't, I don't think is a majority. I just think it's a, it's a group of, you know, it's, it's Twitter, it's the Internet, so there's like a lot of snark and a lot of sarcasm, and that's fun and great and also unproductive, the Spurs effect. You know where, where I'm going with this? That the, the San Antonio Spurs, they hire somebody off the wall from some other walk of life. And Brilliant like, decision. Whoa, what did the Spurs find that none of us found? Right. The Twins are the opposite of that right now. The Twins get zero benefit of the doubt. It's the Twins, uh, 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 Twins sign... You know, Justin Morneau to a one-day contract so he can retire. Well, what a stupid waste of payroll, you know, they, whatever. Or, or sign Byung-Ho Park. And sure. the immediate thing oh, is, oh, another they screw that up. Uh, yeah, how, how did the Twins possibly screw this one up? The, what, they, nobody else was in the bidding for this guy right, either? Right. <laughs> yeah. So Rather than they outbid other teams, it's, well, the Red Sox didn't want him. Yeah, well, they maybe didn't. Maybe they did. I don't they know. They didn't 13 yeah. million want him. I guess so he's not that good. And All right, so all I'm saying is that I'm not, I'm not saying the Twins are infallible. Trust me, I criticize them all the time. They make head-scratching decisions that don't make any sense and like don't follow any logic and turn out to be wrong. Fair to criticize them for that. But for something like this that people were lobbying uh, you know, complaints at the fact that the Twins lost John Hicks is an, an amazing example of this to me. It illustrates that, like, well, they can't do any How many people... When the Twins this winter claimed John Hicks off waivers from the Seattle Mariners, thought, yes, sure. John Hicks, yes, finally, the catching depth in this organization has been solved. Sure. I'm not trying to crap on John Hicks. I think he's a nice guy, and I think he's a decent player and a, and a farmhand. But. But. He's a nice guy. But. Yeah, this is classic Minnesotan setting up. Nice guy, but here are the 30 things I have <laughs> bad to say about him. But losing John Hicks is not that big of a deal. If he goes on to become a starting catcher in the big leagues, I'll eat my words. The Twins need to solve their catching depth right now. Kurt Suzuki is the best thing that they have going at catcher, and that's a bad sign. John Ryan Murphy has been a train wreck so far. Cost them a game on Sunday in part, anyways. I talked to him about that. He says, I asked him, do you think that ball was going to roll foul? And he says, well, I mean, I guess we'll never know now. Well, it 100% was going to roll foul. I think it probably would have. Actually, he had four options. Either let it roll foul, pick it up would be option two, and just stick it in your back pocket Eat to it. avoid yep. colossal disaster. Option three would be pick it up like a pro and throw a strike to first base and end the game. Right. 
That would be the optimal option. Which I think is probably what he was looking for, I'm going to guess. Option four is spaz out a little bit and throw the ball a foot over your first baseman's head in a moment of panic. Make sure the game ties itself and you go to the next inning. Probably made the wrong choice in in hindsight. Here's where I would, um, real quick, well, no, go. You finish your point, and then I'm gonna. I have a counterpoint to your to your John. Sure. Point. My only thought is that if you weren't gonna celebrate when he got here, which you weren't, don't bemoan the day that the Twins lost him because I've made fun of them for 40-man things in the past before. I thought it was terribly, um, uh, not unprofessional is the wrong word, but like unprepared when they let Alex Presley go. Thinking you don't have a center fielder, how are you not gonna protect yourself? This is a stupid 40-man roster management decision. And then, like, what has Alex Presley ever amounted to? So I, I freaked out at the time. I was wrong. Sure. And that's what this is here now. The Twins definitely need to solve catcher. John Hicks, probably not the answer. And the Twins were going to need another 40-man spot anyways. But so. I think what we're – to me, it has nothing to do with Alex Presley as a player or John Hicks as a player. To me, it's about process. And if I see a flaw in the process, it makes me wonder, what other flaws exist in their process? It might be symptomatic of larger issues or sure. things that might be preventing them from, from optimal acquisitions or, or transactions. Where instead of finding out for sure if David Murphy is going to get on a plane and go to the, go to the Twin Cities. And then make they the roster sort of, move. They make the, and, and we'll never know the exact inner workings of those conversations and when they took place and all that. But you didn't need to wave a catcher off of your 40-man roster and risk him getting picked up like he did before you were 100% sure on... No, again, it's not, I'm not going to grill them for it. It's not like a season-ending, right. make-or-break situation. But it's one of those you look at and you say, that wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. You could probably go find another backup catcher, you, whatever. You could probably trade for John Hicks if you wanted to and not give up a whole lot. But it's one of those where you look at and you say, that's just, eh. Right now, for instance, we're sitting here before the Tuesday night game, and they pitched... So last night they had... Um, they had six starting pitchers on their roster, two guys who were too banged up to, to go and Tyler, weren't scheduled anyways. Tyler Duffy and Urban Sanchez. And you can't send Duffy down until he's healthy because the CBA doesn't allow you to do that. You can put him on the disabled list if you want to, but now he's out for 15 days if yeah. you do that. So I totally get why Santana and Duffy, you're kind of in a logjam there. They just have to sit on your roster for a day or two. Now Ryan O'Rourke, you go into that game and he just pitched like 50, 55 pitches on Sunday. Mm-hmm. He's not going to pitch again until later in the week. And he's a fringe roster guy anyways. You can send him out for 10 days and call him back up in a week and a half, yeah. bring an arm up from the minor leagues, even if it's a right-handed arm, yeah. and maneuver the roster that way. Well, why do you go in with three pitchers on your roster that are completely unusable for a division series game against a team that might be there competing in the end? Little things like that, and I'm not going to fillet them for these things, but it's just yeah. I disagree with the process of both those two things this totally. week. Totally. I, as, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, too. As someone who's not emotionally invested in this team and who doesn't really get angry at that much, like there aren't many things that flat out anger me. It's so annoying that they will just kind of punt roster decisions and be like, eh, whatever. Eduardo Escobar last year goes on the paternity list and he'll be gone for a day, but eh, you know, whatever. We'll play shorthand. We'll play with 24 today. That's fine. Because we'll get him back tomorrow. I don't care if we get him back tomorrow. What if you needed him today? Or what if you could have used Jorge Polanco today? Or what if this is the day five times a year where you do play 14 innings? Yeah. Or 15 innings? Totally. And you need that extra pitcher. Boy, it'd be nice to have Jorge Polanco on the roster today, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, but then we got to fly him in to San Diego and then <laughs> fly him back to Rochester. It's a yeah. cross-country flight. I, 
I don't care about any of that because here's one thing that I joked with on your radio show the other day. The twins have this interesting, and man, it's a top, it's, it's not really a top-down view. I think it should be a top-down view. The minor leagues of any franchise exist to fuel wins to your major leagues. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of that with the Twins. Because I joked, Judd Zolgat is watching the game with me on Monday night. He actually called the RCO walk-off, by the way. Props to Judd for that. Wow, look at him. He said, it gets to the bottom of the ninth, RCO walks up there, and Judd goes, why don't you send us home, Ozzy? Can I tell you that I watched the Dozier homer off Strasburg and called that with a buddy at a bar. Does that We're the only two people who know that, and I didn't put it on Twitter, but I want you to give me credit on this podcast. I, I, I would like confirmation from that buddy before I actually give you any I'll props. get you that maybe, confirmation. Maybe next yeah. week. Um, but anyways, the uh, Arcia home run was a big home run, obviously, for them. Um, I was looking at Braille's line. Tommy, goes, Tommy Malone goes four and two-thirds, and I'm thinking, God, how long can the Twins put up with this? Are they going to seriously wait until June to call up Braille's? Like, I, I make fun of the Twins for a lot of things. I think it was smart to keep them down at the beginning of the year, and I think it's smart to call them up now, but I, I didn't exactly give them the benefit of the doubt that they were going to do it. So I look at his minor league nines, and I, oh, 17 innings, 20 strikeouts. Yeah, I turned to Judd, and I said, right, but... He's got to work on his control. Yeah. There are a, a couple of things he's got to work on. He's got to work on his demeanor. Exactly. His mound presence isn't quite there. And so, anyways, I, I started joking about that, and uh, they proved me wrong. Here he is. He's in the big leagues, and it's going to be his, his uh, time to shine now. I think no matter how it goes at the beginning, I think it's the right decision. I think there's a prospect Twins fans can be excited about. Um, Some might say it's happening. Stay tuned for 60-second AP News headlines.